I'd like to welcome everyone out tonight. As has been stated, I know we have some visitors in the audience, and so I am not the normal preacher here. We have had for a long time a custom of at least some point during the year, originally it started out taking one quarter, doing 13 lessons when various men of the congregation would bring a lesson. Usually it was a themed lesson over that uh, period of, of teaching. Uh, we were suspended those activities for a period of time during the pandemic. We resumed them, we resumed them though on Sunday evenings. And this is, uh, I guess, really the third year within this format of doing it on Sunday evenings. We're doing it once a month. And so uh, I'm the first. I know y'all been waiting for two weeks, but I'm the first. <laughs> uh, as we said, I said earlier, the, this is a, a themed series of, of lessons. And the lesson, the theme this, this year, in 2023, is follow the Lamb wherever it goes. And it's taken from Revelation 14, 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from, from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. So this is the thought, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. This is, uh, briefly, this is the, the lecture series for this year. Uh, of course, I'm doing the first one, follow Jesus to the temple, which is, I must be about my father's business, is the main theme of that one. And we're skipping February, as that is the month for our gospel uh, meeting. Chris Fry doing following Jesus into Jordan, a uh, lesson on baptism. Then uh, April, Robbie Howard following Jesus into the wilderness, lessons on temptation and how to handle it. June, West Smith following Jesus into Galilee, a lesson on looking for opportunities and teaching others the gospel. July, Mark Townsend following Jesus to Caesarea Philippi, a lesson on why we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. August, following Jesus into the upper room, Lessons from what happened in the upper room. Uh, I may have got the month slightly out of order. June was Mark Townsend. July, Eric Martin following Jesus into the upper room. Uh, August, Gary Huggins following Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, dealing with the experiences and the prayers that Jesus offered up, up there in Gethsemane. Uh, those events dealing with, if you will, trials and uh, how that experience, how that uh, Jesus handled that, lessons we could learn from that. Uh, September, Stephen Lord following Jesus to the cross. What does it mean to take up the cross and follow Jesus? Uh, skipping, uh, no, September. I've got myself confused here. Following Jesus out of the tomb, the resurrection of Jesus being raised from uh, being raised with Christ to newness of life and the last one which will be December following Jesus into glory a lesson about heaven of course as I mentioned earlier the months of February and October are skipped because of gospel meetings the lesson uh, tonight is taken from a scripture in Luke we find in Luke Luke chapter 2 verses 41 through 52 it deals with one subject that we're probably very familiar with when Jesus was 12 years old, when he went with his parents to the temple. 
and pick up there in uh, verse 42. Let me start. I'll, I'll start there in verse 41. And now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find them, him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After, it says, after four days, after three days, rather, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and men. Following Jesus into the temple. Being about the Father's business. The ESV, by the way, says, says I must be in my Father's house. New King James and King James Version says, being about my Father's business. Uh, a couple of the literal translations say, must be in the things of my Father. But this, the idea here is that we must, he must be about doing and, and the will of his Father. Now there are a couple things that I wanted to consider before I got to the main points of my lessons. Some ancillary points that I think hopefully actually support maybe uh, some of the things that I would say later. Learning what the father's business in is starts within home with parents. Godly parents and foundation in the gospel. Notice what the scripture says about Mary, Joseph and Mary and their attitude towards the comments of God. We get back to Luke chapter 2 verses 21 through 22. It says, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. We see some of the things we'll pick out here. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That was what was required of Jewish males under the law. Time for purification, going up and presenting him at the temple. Offering of, a, of sacrifice for, uh, for that period of time. These are things that are all required by the law. Joseph and Mary were very strict in observance of that. It was their, their uh, observance of that was, is a window to our understanding how they felt about doing God's will. Now, Another New Testament example of that, of course, we have is 
Timothy. Paul, writing to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy, said, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, and without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Later on in that uh, same epistle, Paul told Timothy to continue in the things he had learned, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Timothy was greatly influenced by his mother and his grandmother, and because of their efforts, he was ready to receive the gospel when he heard it. The idea of being about our father's business starts early. It starts in the home, and it starts with parents. Learning how to be about the father's business requires learning about the father, and learning is not a passive endeavor. You know, I don't know of anyone that can master a subject by going home, taking the textbook, and sticking it under his pillow and sleeping on it. Osmosis does not work very well for people. And you won't get a good night's sleep either. Luke 2, 39 through 40 says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee and their own town, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. That's the New King James Version. Filled with wisdom. And the favor and the grace of God was upon him. Even as a young child, the text says that he grew and became strong in the spirit. And he was filled with wisdom. Children can learn and grow in knowledge in every, at every age. And even at a very young age. It's never too early to start the teaching process. When I think about using Jesus as an example at this point, though, uh, it's a little bit problematic for me because I, you know, I'm now dealing into the realm of specul speculation. What did Jesus know and when did he know it? Uh, when I was, at some point in my educational career, came across this from one of my English lit teachers, I'm sure. Can't find it on the internet anymore. Uh, but it was speaking to a certain king of England, King John, the king that followed King Richard. He was not very well liked. He was so badly liked that all the barons and nobles and the dukes and everybody rebelled against him. And as a consequence, something good came out of that for England, which was the Magna Carta. King John was not very well liked. And it went like something like this. How was King John and the baby Jesus alike? And the answer was, at birth they knew everything they'd ever know. In case you didn't get that, King John died knowing what he knew at birth. <laughs> 
Jesus knew everything at birth. Now, I, you know, the thing here is that this is speculation. I have no, I have no understanding or, or sense of when, as a child, he knew that he was the Christ. We don't, we don't find that told, told us anywhere. I don't know what he knew at six or two or six or four or six, whatever. Uh, I don't know when he knew he needed to be about the Father's business. Except that what the scriptures tell me, that by the age of 12, he stayed in Jerusalem. And he states, after Jesus, Jesus and Joseph and Mary left, he, he stayed in the temple. And furthermore, that at the age of 12, that Joseph and Mary found him in the temple, sitting among teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And they were amazed at his understanding or comprehension and his answers. It seems clear to me that even at the age of 12, Jesus was unusual in what he already knew. But note that although Jesus was the Christ, when Mary and Joseph and Mary took him home, he was submissive to them. And he continued to grow physically and emotionally and spiritually in experience, life experience. At the age of 12, there's still a lot to learn about living in this world. He has still had things to learn, but clearly was Jesus was taking an active part in the growing and the learning and the gaining of wisdom process that we each do when we grow through, and we grow from infant to toddler, to childhood, to teenager, to young adult, and on. We're continuously learning through that time frame. That is the natural course for mankind. But again, we're talking about Jesus, right? A nat more natural example to us, a more comparable example to us might be Timothy. He was just a normal human person, just like you and me. He learned the scriptures from his grandmother and mother. I'm convinced that Timothy, like Jesus, not, didn't take just merely a passive role in his learning process. He was an active participant. He took an active role in learning by listening, by asking questions, being interested in spiritual things. It may start with parents and grandparents, but at some point, a desire to learn must be present and must be pursued by the individual. Timothy pursued what he learned, and he continued in those things that he learned from Eunice, and Eunice, from Eunice and Lois and from Paul. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, but you must continue, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Learning is not a passive activity. You've got to be interested in learning. You've got to apply energy towards that learning process. Jesus, he was asking questions and listening to the answers at the age of 12. That's what we have to do. We can apply ourselves to study. 
we can ask questions of people that we trust and under, that knows that we know will give us straight and true answers. This kind of interest that we find in Christ and Timothy was also manifest in the Christians at Berea. Acts 17, 10 says, the brothers, brethren, the brothers at Thessalonica immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Paul told Timothy to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Diligence in study, experience in rightly dividing the word of God is gained through the application of what we find in the word to what we see, what we hear, what we do, and yes, even to asking questions, seeking out other Christians' understanding in order to expand our own understanding. That will lead us to confidence in understanding the word and the will of God and what he wants from us. My third final point about this, youth is not a limiting factor to be about father's business. Jesus was 12 years old. The text says that Joseph and Mary found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. This is in a society and culture that venerated and respected age, more so even than the culture we have today. For sure, we actually are backwards of that, we venerate youth as opposed to age. <coughs> Excuse me. It would have been hard for a 12-year-old, think about this, a 12-year-old that in the midst of teachers who would have been in their 40s, 50s, 60s even, to gain and hold their attention, to be taken seriously. Think about that, to be taken seriously. But the text says that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. I don't know how Jesus made contact with these people or how he was able to engage in conversation meaningful conversation and dialogue with these people. But this is one thing I'm pretty sure about. He did it by being respectful and courteous to those that were older and more venerated than him. Words fitly spoken in the right way will open the door to any conversation. But Jesus' knowledge and understanding kept them there. Jesus, Paul told Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Even if you're young, okay? Even if you're young, you can breach the age gap by being respectful and courteous in your speech and conduct. It makes an impression. At the age of 12, Jesus felt the need to be about God's business. Even at such a young age, it's age 12. The desire was there. And you can take advantage of that. The desire is there, the opportunity is there. If you approach it in the right manner, you can teach. 
You can teach people your own age. You could even make, uh, have a conversation, a meaningful conversation with those that are older than you. And spread maybe something that they don't know yet. So I was thinking about, those are my, main, my three ancillary points. My main points now are coming up. Think about this, this lesson and what to get from, from this, being about the Father's business. And the one story in the Bible that kept, I kept coming back to, very, very, very familiar story to everyone here. Kids sing a song about it, Zacchaeus. Luke 19 says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into the sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. <clears throat> For I must be at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to the house, to the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, today, said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. To me, this is the crowning mission statement being about the Father's business for Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost. Since man fell from grace in the garden, God had been working to redeem and reconcile mankind to himself. Christ came preaching the kingdom is at hand, but ultimately his mission was to fulfill God's plan to redeem man by dying on the cross as an acceptable sacrifice for man's sins, for it was through his sacrifice that peace or reconciliation was made between God and man. God redeemed man from death, of the wages of death, or the wages of sin and the bondage of sin by sacrificing his son on the cross. It is the will of God, the Lord to crush him that he might be put to grief. And Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38. Preaching the kingdom to come, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, the lame to walk, dying on the cross, being resurrected, putting everything in place to grow the kingdom after his ascension back to the Father, all of which Jesus did was in order to fulfill God's will to seek and save the lost. Seeking and saving the lost was Jesus' mission. And if we are going to follow in Jesus' footsteps, it has to be our mission too. And on the occasion that we have recorded in John 4, in which we've shorthandedly know as the woman at the well, Jesus was speaking to his disciples through metaphor as they, were, <clears throat> they had urged him to eat. This is what he said. 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Every farmer, and my wife's a farmer's daughter, so I, I, I know this firsthand. When the crops are ready for harvest, you best be getting on with it. Farmers worked long and hard hours, forsaking meals and sleep to get the crops in. Because they understood if the crop is not harvested on time, it's ruined and lost. That's just all there is to it. Jesus gives us the urgency here. The fields are white for harvest. They were, harvest, they were white for harvest then, they're white for harvest now. The work of getting the harvest in before it's too late requires workers. Christ needs workers to be about his father's business. We have a debt obligation to fulfill Jesus' mission, to seek and save the lost. Paul said, I'm a debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So much is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul felt a heavy obligation because as he noted to Timothy, he proclaimed that Christ had come into the world to save sinners, of which he himself was a chief sinner. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm gonna tell you something. We're just as lost as Paul was. Paul was no worse sinner, even though he felt like he was. But one sin makes us a sinner. One sin sent Jesus to the cross. We're just as much dead as Paul was. Our obligation is just as great. Because the same Savior that redeemed Paul, he redeemed us from the same fate as well. We have a debt to, then to fulfill Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. Paul said in chapter 10 of Romans, how then can they call on the ones that have not believed and how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You know, we have the example of Christ. We have tools. We have feet and mouth, <laughs> right? We have the necessary things. We are God's hands, right? To do his work here on earth. And we have everything we need, everything is supplied to us to fulfill Christ's mission. We can bring the good news and we too can be about the Father's business. What else might be the Father's business? God's work is sanctification. God said, you shall be holy for I am holy. Jude, a monster of Jesus Christ and brother James, to those who were called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Paul, speaking of marriage and the role of husbands and wives to marriage, makes up the comparison to the relationship of Christ to the church. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, he says, Husbands, love your wife, 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself to her for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing on water of the word by the word, that he might present himself to her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all those who are being sanctified. One act to sanctify. But you know, he noticed what he said here. Those who are being sanctified. There is an act that allows us to be sanctified. But sanctification continues through beyond that baptism that we into into Christ. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul said, I am sure Paul said, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring to you into completion at the day of Christ. There is a beginning which Christ died for us and there will be an end when he returns. Paul expressed confidence in the character of the Philippians that they would remain firm in their faith and conviction, persevering to the end. It's our duty to continue the work of sanctification that God started through Christ's sacrifice and our acceptance and obedience of the gospel. Peter said it this way. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is, the world, that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue, and with virtue knowledge, and with knowledge self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord our Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from the sins. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to confirm your, ex- your calling and election, for if you pr- practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a part here we understand. Okay? We have this part in this process of sanctification. We have the need to build up and to edify ourselves, not just ourselves, but the body of Christ as well. Paul, Peter instructed Christians to prepare their minds for action, to, re, to be sober-minded, to set their hope on Christ, to be holy, to purify, another word for sanctify, to purify their souls by obedience to the message of the words. Sanctification is our work too. Our work in being about, because sanctification is God's business, when we work to sanctify ourselves, to build ourselves up, to build one another up, we're doing God's business. 
There is embedded in Peter's positive statements the thought that everyone not pursuing his virtues has forgotten what he has been cleansed from his sins. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, said, working together with him, that is Christ, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 says, there is danger for the Christians. If we do not continue to work to sanctification that began when we first believed and obeyed, Paul asked the questions, should believers continue in sin? He answers it, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? James said it this way, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will be draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sanctification, our sanctification, our building up within in the body of Christ is doing God's business. We're to continue in spiritual growth. For the, by, through the, by the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is, he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Paul said in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. One final point I want to consider is this. Love is also God's business. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have, but have eternal life. The word we find in John 3.16, love, is translated from the Greek word agape. Agape is not a simple word describing an emotion or desire. Rather, it's a word that calls for action. Such love seeks the well-being of the object of its love. Its motivation lies in the nature of the one who loves. It's God's nature to love or seek the well-being of his creation. It also conveys his will with respect to how we treat each other. John 13, verse 34 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also are to love one another and for all men. When it says that God loved his creation, it wasn't talking about just trees and mountains. Okay? We have stewardship of what he has created for us. We should take care of it. But Christ didn't come to die for the trees. He didn't come to die for the mountains or the streams. No, how, no matter how beautiful it was, he didn't come for that reason. He came and died for mankind to seek and save the lost, to reconcile themselves, them to himself. And may the Lord make you increase in abounding love for one another, for all as we do for you. This is God's business.
It's our business. This is what Christ was doing when he went about doing God's business. His love for mankind, his love for doing the will of the Father, caused him to go to the cross for us. We have that same obligation. When we love, that is agape, the brotherhood, in all of mankind, we are doing the work of God. For such love, sourced out of how God views love, will always call for action on our part toward Him. We obey His commands and serve Him, and towards fellow Christians, that is love of the brotherhood, and extending that out to all mankind. In serving God, we do His will, and therefore, we are doing His business. We were created for a purpose. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, as God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 So then, as we have opportunity, here's our business part. Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10 Good works and doing good to others is doing what God wants us to do. If God did not love us, we would be without lost, without hope. In Romans, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have good regard, regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. What Paul says in Romans 12, 10 here is, this is God's business that he's given us to do. When we do these things, when we do what Paul has told us to do here, we're doing God's business. Ephesians 4.28, last verse I'll, I'll bring it, read up here, is let the, thief, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up. And that's the sophistication that it may give grace to those here. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Christ came and died on the cross. He died for everyone. Not, not just for the ones that are here tonight. He died for the whole world. And he wants everyone to be saved. Inasmuch as Christ is not here. We are his hands and his feet, his tongue, his ears. We walk upon the earth 
And it's through us that he operates and going about his mission, being about his father's business, seeking the lost and saving them. And that's what we're about here. Well, I hope that's what we learned from the lesson. My lesson is at an end. But as we think about this tonight, maybe you're not following in the footsteps of Jesus yet. Maybe you've wanted to. Maybe you've been here time and time again. You've heard lessons. You know what to do. You've been enjoying in song and prayers with the others, but yet you've not committed. To fall in the footsteps of Jesus requires a step. One step out of where you're sitting in your comfort zone tonight. Moving forward, following in the steps of Jesus. This is the opportunity we have tonight for that. If you want to take advantage of that, this time, this opportunity, as we begin to sing, or have you been following the path, of, following the footsteps of Jesus, and you've kind of wandered off the path? Maybe it's time now to get back on it. We stand ready to help in any way we can, through prayers, confess your sins, get straight, get back in the path, and follow the steps of Jesus. This is an opportunity for that as well tonight as well. As join me as we lead in, Joseph, Jacob leads in singing the invitation song. <laughs>